Hi, and welcome to the Shrewsbury Biscuit Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Whiteley. I've given up that, Shane. I, I, it's going to be <laughs> what it is. It is what it is, okay? I can't be doing different intros to everything. It's unnatural to me, man. It's like writing with your left hand, trying to do a different yeah, intro. I, I can see that, to be fair. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> this is our second show of the Open Studios this week. Uh, we had a few schedule changes, uh, but that's fine. That's fine. That's how life is. You know, um, we did set up these shows within less than two weeks to sort of plan. And yeah. uh, a lot of that planning. Imp- improvise, adapt, and overcome, Alex. Exactly. Uh, and we've already come up with maybe a fun idea of doing a live show in a bit. I don't know. Maybe. We'll see. We'll Just see. to see how the wind blows, you know. Uh, but joining us um, on the show is. Uh, the first person to ever come on the Shrewsbury Biscuit, um, I, I consider him a mentor of mine because he always uh, he always inspires me. He's Mr. Simon Bell. Thank you very much for joining us on the Biscuit, Simon. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Oh, I, I love speaking Again. to you, Simon. You're, 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 you're like the... You, you popped our podcast cherry as the as Biscuit podcast. <laughs> you, you know, you, 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 you're the one that, that, that started all this off. So it's all your fault, really. Um, <laughs> like... <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> now, Simon um, is 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 an author, um, and um, you've written a, a number of books, um, uh, some by yourself, some with others, uh, about about Holocaust uh, and and uh, the rhetorics of hate. Um, and you know, it's 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 been a while since we spoke last. Um, speaking about those old books, so like, is it continuing to sort of move? Are those books continue? Uh, consi- con- you know, continuing to start conversations and 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 you know do good things that you wanted them to do. I, I hope so. I've I've got a new book that is currently with publishers, and that one I anticipate will lead to more conversations uh, in wider circles, just because of the subject matter that it covers. It's Holocaust related, as are all my books, but this one particularly looks at collaboration and collusion. So the way that societies that were occupied by the Nazis actually helped facilitate the crimes of the Holocaust, but also some societies that weren't occupied, who enabled in some way. So countries like the United States and Great Britain, uh, how the United States um, allowed senior Nazis to escape, actually recruited some for the uh, Apollo mission program. Um, the reluctance of the United States and Great Britain to accept Jewish refugees. Um yeah, because I read somewhere that Winston Churchill was actually the godfather of the concentration camp, right? Is that right? Is that correct? No, there's a there's a British history of concentration camps in South Africa during the Boer War. Yeah. Um, but concentration camps um, have popped up in, in many conflict zones and um, genocides uh, over hundreds of years. Uh, the Nazis uh, took them to another level. Uh, yeah. Kind of like mm. this is this is how we do genocide. You did it. <laughs> and actually, I was watching the Crown recently, and obviously there's, there's that storyline of the the member of the royal family that was uh, colluding with Hitler in a big way, um, and you know he was lucky to escape jail actually for that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it's interesting to to discuss um, you know what kind of happened after the war as well because like, obviously the NASA program was. Uh, it was very much run by ex-Nazi scientists. Hmm. Um, so, like, America like, may have landed on the moon. Hey, hey. But you've got the war to thank for that, because obviously when wars happen, uh, technology advances, and it's because of those scientists uh, that were on the other side uh, were working so hard. So, hmm. Yeah, you know. Hmm. Uh, so, um, obviously, we're during lockdown. I mean, did I speak to you at the beginning of lockdown on you on you suck? Did I was that the beginning? I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah, yeah. Kind of in the, in the middle of summer, wasn't it? You know, um, and we were talking about sort of uh, the, the new book, and you were kind of like, yeah, it's 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 written. I'm waiting for someone to pick it up, and someone's picked it up now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Mm. So uh, it's with, it's with um, pen and sword history publishers. So they specialize in history books. Um, it won't be released until about October next year. Uh, there are processes that big publishers go through that the previous publishers didn't such a degree. But October next year, it should be out on the shelves. And I'll be back on the podcast plugging it. Yes, you will. <laughs> Welcome anytime. Welcome anytime. <laughs> um, uh, so how so, much... Go on, Shane. Sorry. Go on. It's like... Okay. No, please do, Shane. Now, this is oh. this is the best thing about this. It's like I had Simon all to myself last time. Now I've got Biscuitiers <laughs> alongside me. So please, any questions you've got for Simon, please do. So, 
Simon, like, obviously, um, you've this, this isn't the first book, um, but I guess that the process to get it to the point of publishing and like, it's, it's quite long winded because I mean the facts that and and the fact finding and and the you know the, the research and stuff that that goes into it's not just writing a fantasy book, is it? It's just no. off the top of your head. Um, you having to really grind that kind of doing your research and then checking it and then checking that checker, you know, and yeah, and I'm assuming that that takes quite a while. There's a lot of cross-referencing. There's a, a, a technique that historians use for uh, fact-checking. They call it triangulation. Mm. So if, for instance, um, you're looking at Polish crimes against Jews during the Holocaust, yeah. you look at uh, Polish court records, you look at witness testimonies, you look at uh, post-war German court records. So look at three different sources. Right. With, with every chapter and every aspect of each chapter, I've tried to use at least three credible sources to yeah. pick up that the research I've initially mm. found is relevant uh, and, and good research. And looking at, at the, the sources themselves, you know, do they mm. have an agenda? Um, uh, it, yeah, I mean, it, it's a diff- it, yeah, because I mean, with every, with every situation, isn't there? There's three, there's three sides of your story, isn't there? Like, there's always three sides of your story. There's you know each each person and then the actual truth. Mm. Um, and I, I, I can assume that. Um, that trying to, especially when you're writing about that, then obviously you're sticking your sort of head up above the parapet a little bit. Mm. And if you get that wrong, then you're going to be, you're screwed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so like you've got to make sure that that's right. And I can imagine that the pressure of that is quite, is really real. Yeah. And, and there are some who aren't as robust. And I wouldn't class myself as up, up there with the, you know, there's some tremendous historians. But the, you know, if you think of, I refer to him as a writer rather than a historian, David Irving who had a wonderful reputation for his research into German military history, <clears throat> his reputation is ruined. Yeah. He's, he's now information from Germany that was never verified. His, his uh, methodology was dreadful. Yes. Right. His reputation being up, dropping completely as it became apparent. Mm. He had an agenda. His agenda was pro-Nazi. It was Holocaust denial. It became very much the focus of his work and still, his, you know, he still his money uh, mm. to try and undermine this cleverness. Fact that you've sort of had to, this took you ages of trying to nail it down, you know? Um, I wouldn't say there's any particularly awkward ones to nail down. There are, there are difficult ones to read when you're, right. when you're doing the research. The, the behaviour of human beings towards their fellow yeah. human beings is, is beyond comprehension at times. And it still goes on. There are still genocides. There are still dreadful crimes uh, being perpetrated against uh, victim communities. It's just the, the simple thought that one person can do such dreadful things yeah. uh, to fellow human beings. When you read about uh, the massacre at Babi Yar in um, Ukraine, you know, thousands of Jews over a couple of days uh, being shot into a ravine. When you read about the, um, the murders on the... Uh, the banks of the river in Budapest, where mm. they would tie people together in freezing winter weather, shoot one with the idea that that person would fall into the river and the other one would drown to save bullets. Wow. Um, you know, the people could do that to, to children, to babies, to, um, to, to adults. When you hear firsthand, and I've heard this firsthand from a survivor, uh, descriptions of a, 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 an SS guard at Auschwitz who would, was nicknamed William Tell because he would put food on the heads of children and then shoot the child in the, in the head um, and laugh. He would throw, this is awful for a podcast, but you know, it's, it's the reality of genocide. He, for fun, would throw babies in the air and catch them on his bayonet. And That's I've heard this firsthand man. from a survivor who actually witnessed it. You know, and when you hear survivors' own personal experiences of, mm. of the hardship and fear and you know, the suffering that they went through, the things that they saw every day, you know, that, that's difficult to commit, uh, to compute, but then to try and put that in writing um, in a way that's palatable but doesn't lessen the reality of war and genocide and yeah. lived experiences. I'm very conscious, as anyone is who's met survivors and who tries to, to educate, whether it's talking to an audience or writing or doing podcasts or radio mm. or anything else, I'm very conscious that the survivors of the Holocaust are fewer and fewer. Yes. I'm fortunate that I've met many and I'm, I've got close friendships with some, um, but their numbers are diminishing. They won't be with us for no. much longer. And there are many who have recorded their testimonies in writing, in, in virtual accounts where in decades to come, audience will be able to ask a hologram a question 
and mm. that question had been pre-programmed in and the survivor yeah. will reply. But we who've heard their accounts, who um, study mm. history, have also have a duty I was going to say all these all these horrendous things that have happened and obviously you are you're archiving these in your books and you're reading about them and how does that how does that weigh on you uh, your mental health and it's all like you're you're you, you have empathy just like everyone else um how does that weigh on you does it, is it quite difficult it, it's Surprising, not difficult. And it, there's a difficulty in that it's that sense of duty to try and um, continue to be a voice um, to make sure the lessons are learned, which most survivors who uh, have spoken out in public want the lessons to learn. And we, all of us, have a duty to try and make sure the lessons are learned. The things that they experienced and witnessed and that were perpetrated against them are difficult, but um, I've got a detachment from them. Um, I wasn't there. I didn't live through it. I didn't lose anyone uh, mm. during the Holocaust. I visited the sites of the Holocaust. I've seen cyanide staining on gas chamber walls. I've seen piles of ash. I've walked through the pastures at the back of Birkenau where you can see specks of bone um, in the mud. Uh, and there are ponds still full of human remains. Uh, but I've got a detachment. Uh, there's no uh, personal connection to me through family uh, or personal loss. My old job uh, involved dealing with offenders, uh, perpetrators and victims of crime. That had a bigger impact because I, mm. I was hearing and... and being, it's, it's now, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's, yeah. The, you know, these were things that had happened you know, hours, yeah. days earlier, and I was being made privy to them. And I, I, I had a level of responsibility professionally mm. to the individuals I was dealing with and the professionals I was working alongside and the organisations I had to engage with, that took a greater toll than, than the Holocaust yeah. genocide. I suppose it's a little bit hot, almost humble in a way, isn't it? It kind of puts the whole world into perspective, doesn't it? You know, and you're like, you know, some people really have the stuff people endure or witness and and then carry on with their lives. And, and, mm. and you know, is it, and some of them actually quite you know, successfully and positively. And you think how... How are you coping with that? Because I, I just listened to it. I'm, you know, like, it's um, it's quite it's quite remarkable, isn't it? Um, mm. and, and some didn't cope. Um, uh, I, I personally, um, when I started working in mental health care nearly forty years ago, we had long stay pop- populations in psychiatric hospitals, and some of those were survivors of the war. They'd been uh, combatants. They'd been civilians who uh, suffered during the conflict. Some of them were from Eastern Europe, and some of them were Jewish survivors of the camps. Not a huge number, but some were. Uh, they clearly didn't cope. There was some research done in Israel in about 1989, I think it was, where they looked at, uh, I think it was about 100, who had a primary diagnosis of schizophrenia. And right. they stopped all medication with them, reviewed their diagnosis, reassessed them, and found that not one of them had schizophrenia. They all had post-traumatic stress. that was manifesting extreme symptoms, but their mental illness was actually PTSD. It was mm. the experiences of camps and of being hiding and witnessing and murder and suffering and experience the suffering. It's PTSD is um is an absolute curse. Uh, I'll just give my chance the internet a chance to catch up because it's uh there we go. Uh, PTSD is, is is a curse. I I, I mean I always remember this story and it's very humbling and um I, I'll always tell it. Um, and it's uh, this this guy, this Scottish guy. Hello. Any minute. Sorry, I'm just waiting for it to catch up. My internet. I'm running on 4G, man. It should be like. Um, <laughs> it's coming back, coming back. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry about that. My internet. Well, what can you do? Uh, <laughs> uh, I always tell the story um, about this gentleman that I come across, and PTSD was. Um, was the cause of it? I was I was a security guard. I was young, and um, this guy was trying to steal uh, half a vodka, right? And um, I stopped him in the front of the, the tills, and he was crying, shaking. His eyes were bloodshot red, and he was just shaking with this bottle of vodka. And I very gently took it off him, and like this is completely against like the the, the supermarket I was working for. Uh, their policy because you're supposed to take him back and call the police all this sort of stuff this is why i don't do that job anymore i very gently took that bottle off him and told him to go home 
and get some sleep. And he did. And then the, the, a couple of days later, he came back to me, the front of the store, and he said he thanked me for my for the way I dealt with him and the way I spoke to him. It was the the anniversary of the Falklands, and it really. It, it, that day, it was like torture for him. He told me, "He's like he just didn't know where he was. All he could see was the faces of his comrades, because like the Falcons was a short but very bloody war." Um, and um, yeah, he thanked me, and every single day he'd come and talk to me and say hello, and you know, he, he introduced me to his wife and stuff. You know, that was just that's what PTSD does, you know. And uh, mm. I'm very grateful for that experience because it's very humble and it made me sort of give me an insight as to what these people go through. Because like you're saying, like mental health, uh, back in the day, uh, when, when you first started, Simon, I guess, that they didn't understand as much as they do now, I guess. Yeah? No, and <clears throat> when I was um, in the last part of my career, 22 years working in the criminal justice system, the way we dealt with um, people involved in mental health services had changed greatly and it was very much focused during assessment to look at trauma experiences because we knew that if you didn't ask questions about trauma experiences at assessment, it was unlikely that someone would disclose them later on. And research showed that in a number of mental health problems, and this is still the case, trauma is a factor. You get people with a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. Some 68% of them have a, a childhood sexual abuse history. 68% of that patient group who in the early days of me working in mental health, this was a patient community that was somewhat dismissed. Now we understand better um, and we validate them by asking about their personal experiences at assessments and making it normal and okay. We, I would say we, I'm not involved in it anymore, but mental health services um, validate the individual by asking about personal experiences at mm. assessment, making it okay to talk about them. So if, for instance... I saw someone who wasn't known to mental health services as part of the assessment process. I would ask about abuse and trauma experiences. They might not disclose any to me, but if I refer them to another service, they'll be asked that question again. They may not disclose it to them. That service may refer them to another service. And again, the question is asked. It normalizes talking about personal experiences and saying it's okay to talk about these and these may um, <clears throat> be a factor in how you feel the way you feel now and who you are now. Mm. It's interesting with PTSD and the Holocaust. There's lots of research has been done into that, and there are uh, different manifestations dependent on someone's personal experience. People um, who were in the camps um, uh, tend to have flashbacks. You know the the images of of death and suffering and murder. People who were in hiding tend to be hypervigilant. They're hyper alert to danger. They're always expecting uh, mm. someone to come around the corner and arrest them or harm them. People who had both experiences will have hypervigilance and flashbacks. There was some research done into, I, I, a couple of years ago, I got asked to speak at an event at Coventry Cathedral, which is one big building, I'll tell you. And it was for the Ukrainian community, to, an event to commemorate a thing called the Holodomor, or terror famine in 1932-33, when millions of Ukrainians starved to death. Mm. There are second, third, fourth generation Ukrainians who still hoard food, who wow. still bags packed, ready to flee mm. because their grandparents were great-grandparents. Uh, they all, they'd suffered during the Holodomor and they were always expecting that same danger to, danger to come. So even if they emigrated to the United States or Britain or Australia, they'd still have bags packed and they'd still mm. be hoarding food. And th their children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren were doing the same. So there's that um, so yeah. of trauma. And you get, you get it with second, third generation Holocaust survivors. Yeah. You, you, you get similar sort of things with them um, with war vets as well, don't you? Where if they get if something happens in their life with that um, it's particularly stressful or something, they'll revert back to their um, to the sort of training, I guess. That you know, you'll, you'll see them digging holes in, in the ground and sleeping in it, <laughs> things mm. like that. Like, you know, and it's just because that that's just their that, that's where their mind automatically just reverts to because that's where they were safest in, in their in their you know they, they they're, they're trained to prepare for a situation in that in that setting, aren't they? You know, yeah. whereas something in, in their everyday life that they're not necessarily prepared to 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 deal with, they don't know they don't know what they're doing because they've had no training for that. You know, they don't well, know what, what's going on. That's because the army is an institution, um, and uh, you know, concentration camps they're an institution. You know, that that stuff is 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 forced into you. It's it's like it's, it's you are brainwashed. Well, the whole the whole 
objective of those of the armies concentration camps and stuff is all to break you down and then rebuild you with something else isn't it you know that's the whole point of it um and so yeah i mean obviously some of these terrible things these people i mean you there's also the thing to, to recognize that so even some of the people some of the, the, the nazi um people in charge of the concentration camp suffered as well because so you know some some of them didn't want to do the stuff that they're doing yeah, and, and that's something that's, that needs to be noted as well, I suppose. It's, very important, important point. Very, very important point. And is that covered in your book? Is that, I mean, obviously, when we talk about the scientists um, <clears throat> that, that, you know, helped America um, after the war, mainly, they probably had a gun put to their head and be like, we want this and we want it tomorrow. Is that covered? Yeah, but they were also using slave labour. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they, they definitely felt that there was some pressure on to do the scientific research, but they willingly employed slave labor knowing that that slave and forced labor community uh, was suffering mm. and would die um, a, a lot of the people who got employed in the nasa program um, if they'd been caught by others may well have been used for scientific research because the russians the british the french yeah. others all all wanted that rocket technology but they could well have found themselves being prosecuted for war crimes yeah. it's a valid point valid point is the uh, the space race with um with Russia, you know, there was that need for need for haste, <laughs> I, I guess. Um, there was selectivity as well. Um, you know, there was a, a what do they call it, the, the rabbit run, um, where senior Nazis escaped Europe to South America, and many helped them, including, in some cases, the Americans. Klaus Barbie um, eventually uh, got prosecuted in France. He was, he was condemned to death in absentia in a post-war trial for... Uh, crimes in Lyon. He was known as the Butcher of Lyon. And, you know, uh, many, many people got murdered at his um, uh, behest. He, um, in the post-war years, was given a new identity and actually worked for the American, um, what became CIA, um, as a spy, um, mm. spying on the Soviets. And when it was apparent that he was going to be captured, it was the Americans who moved him to South America. Um, you know, he, he went from being a criminal to someone useful. Um, yeah, ah, crazy. Um, where did you go to do your research for this book then? But what, where were the sources and the people you spoke to? Um, what was the most valuable thing for you? Most, most of the sources were vast, vast libraries. I was lucky that in part for part of the research, uh, I was still doing my master's degree because one of my projects uh, after leaving mental health work was to do an MA in second world war studies. That gave me an access to libraries across the world um, that I could just get into online. Um, so I've got a lot of primary and secondary source documentation that way. That was most of the research uh, that I did was just thousands and thousands of documents uh, plowed through endlessly, sort of 30 hours a week. Mm. Are, there, are, there, are, are, are there things that have just recently become declassified that were previously classified that kind of add context to a lot of there, history? There are some with... Um, certainly in Ukraine and Hungary, um, Ukraine particularly because it was under the umbrella of the Soviet Union for so long. And it was only uh, post-89-90 that documents started to be released that had been um, forbidden um, from public viewing, not only to do with the, the Holocaust in Ukraine, but to do with the Holodomor, the, the terror famine that happened there. So in that Soviet sphere of influence, it's only the last 20, 30 years that some documentation has come forward. Some of it is questionable some of the post-war trials or the trials that occurred during the soviet era, soviet era you know the people were tortured the trials were a bit dodgy um the, the, it wasn't due process that you'd expect to find in mm. most jurisprudence systems i mean like uh there are so there must be so many mysteries when it comes to world war ii especially with, what happened with the blitz you know like the whole town's just gone, destroyed, and you just have to assume all those people are dead. But there's, there's the, you know, this must have been hard to investigate every single person's death, and that's that's the value of life, then, isn't it? You just mm. you're a statistic yeah. out of those, you know, ten thousand people that are probably killed on that night. Uh, you're one of them, and that's it. And that's a uh, that's horrible. That's really mm. horrible to think about. And, and um, on the flip side, with the the Allied bombing of German towns and cities the figures of how many died were even more questionable because there were slave labor communities there. There were forced labor communities. Certainly during the last period of the war, there were refugee communities of Germans and others moving across Germany. So we don't know how many people were in Hamburg or you know, Munich or Berlin when it was being bombed um, because of 
there's this sort of transient community there. Mm. Mm. Difficult times then, you know, uh, and, you know, we can compare what's going on uh, with, uh, you know, sort of uh, Trump's America, you know, the the ICE stuff uh, that's going on. You can compare it to that, but you're not even going to get close. You're not going to get close. I know there are genocides still going on. There are in the world at the moment um <clears throat> in some places um but you know we have got to talk about sort of how things have been going um uh, because the first the first conversation we had on the shoes of biscuit was one of uh, the rhetoric and the, this kind of repetitiveness of, of human nature of kind of how we find, always seem to find ourselves doing these things not us but you know civilization as if you can call it that um you know and with the mexicans being you know uh, trapped in cages and given foil blankets and what have you that is that is that seems uh, you know familiar doesn't it you know yeah um do you think i mean like this about trying to get political do you think that's over in america or do you think it's going to carry on but just secretly you know i i don't know i think it the case of remains to be seen um, <clears throat> america um is not just under trump but there's been hostility to migrant yeah. communities um you know Presidents yeah. of either party have um, been harsh towards migrant communities. I think what we've seen under Trump with the cages and children being separated from parents, possibly never to be reconnected with parents again because uh, identifications and contacts have been lost. That's dreadful. And it's, I think it's something that America mm. will have to reflect on for many years to come. Uh, one of the things that stands out about that and elsewhere in the world, and we spoke about this on the podcast before, is that dehumanization of people where people become them they become the other uh, they cease to be human we've seen you, know, you see it in genocide you see it in the holocaust in the holocaust when people arrive at camps they're stripped they're removed of their clothes they're shaved they're t- tattooed in Auschwitz. um they, they become a number uh, they cease to be the human being they once were when you put people in cages or you just um, use blanket terms to describe people who are fleeing war zones in the middle east and, and elsewhere uh, as them, as the other, as illegals. You know, the awful phrase that people use, illegals. No human is illegal. They're human beings. Um, it becomes easier to accept harm against those people. Do, do, I was going to say, do you think it's the, making these people a number and, and dehumanising them is is about dehumanising the, the victim or is it about making it easier for them to do the thing? Rwanda, the... Tutsis were referred to as cockroaches, repeatedly referred to as cockroaches. If you refer to them as cockroaches, you know, if you have uh, an infestation of cockroaches in your, your property, you, you might step on them or get a pest control in to get rid of them. Cockroaches ain't human. It's easy to do that. Mm. And by referring to people as cockroaches or rats or vermin or a cancer or a plague or an infestation, it becomes easy to harm them or it becomes easy to dismiss dismiss any harm that they, yeah. they experience or to turn a blind eye. Because I mean, you, you, know. you you get um you get psychopaths, don't you, that, that murder their victims and then they'll either um decapitate or like um or de- you know take off the face or, or cover their face and stuff like that so they can continue doing the stuff that they want to do. And I think that's Hi, kids, a lot of- uh, make sure you uh get but, get a- <laughs> <laughs> but a, a lot of that is because they if they ha- if they could see the face they couldn't do what they want to do, you know, or what they need to do, or for whatever reason that would be. Um, and I, I assume, or I, I would, I would, I would imagine that um, one of the, like you said, one of the reasons for that, for the dehumanisation is is to, is for their own benefit, I suppose. Mm. Um, and we mentioned earlier about military personnel, and there certainly are many, many military personnel who experience PTSD and have dreadful problems with it. Hopefully, something getting help, and many don't. <clears throat> their PTSD experiences have changed over time. People mm. who are in face-to-face combat, combat will have a different experience of war trauma compared to someone who is firing artillery from 20 yes. miles away. Um, of course, of course. You know, people dropping bombs from aircraft yeah. or piloting drones will have d- different trauma experiences from those. Uh, and and the same, same again to a sniper, isn't it? That's yeah. right up close, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> um, you know, it's you see it a lot of time on films and stuff with regards to snipers and things like that. They say, you know, it's, it's all very well if everyone wants to be a sniper, but you know, you see that person's face, you see their wedding ring, you see all this other stuff, and you can't get that out of your head. You know, 
uh, that person is a person and from from a from a personal perspective i suppose is you you would be watching them there'll be an overwatch so you'd be watching them for a while they're, they're a human being and they've got to then carry out the tasks that they've been ordered to do by their by their superiors and, and mm. i think that's what i should get with regards to um recognize the, the there we go. Once we move into my new place, then we won't have any problems like this because I'll have super fast internet. And uh, yeah. Okay. So uh, everything that you just said, Shane, I'm going to take out of the podcast because all I got was face off. It's psychopaths. Yeah. Awesome. So when, 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 it, when it comes to you wanting to write a new book, Simon, um, what what's the what's the uh, where does the inspiration come from? Um, because obviously you can look at you can look at um, Holocaust, uh, war, or anything that happens during World War Two. Any sort of with any sort of context and come from every single any single sort of angle. Um, mm. So what what makes you go? Oh, I need to write a book about this. The, the latest one um, was purely from uh, doing my uh, MA. My dissertation was on the the Holocaust in Poland. And you know, a lot of work went into that. And as I was working on that, I, I did the uh, Ukrainian events. So I had to do some research on the Holodomor. I thought there's a bigger, bigger story here. And the, you know, we, we generally think of the Holocaust as occurring in Poland and Ukraine, but it occurred in the Netherlands. It occurred in France. It occurred in in, in Italy. It occurred in Hungary. Um, so I thought, yeah, these stories need to be told. People need to see the bigger picture, particularly the citizens of those countries that were occupied actually participated in the crimes of the Holocaust and were willing participants. And it's, that's, it's easy to just blame Nazis mm. and say, oh, the crimes of Nazis, they're, they're the criminals, they're the ones who did wrong. But they had enablers, they had uh, collaborators, they had people who stood by who um, were willing to allow these crimes to take place or who actively participated in them. Not all within the occupied countries. Now there were resistance movements in, in every country, but some. And if some are cap- were capable of doing it then, some are capable of doing it now or in the yes. future. If the right ingredients um, allow such harm to take place. So I'd, I just think it's an important message to make sure people read about, about the past to learn about it. Mm. I saw a horrifying picture actually uh, a few weeks ago. It was um, it was a picture of a Nazi rally in like. I think it was Philadelphia. Was it Philadelphia? It wasn't. Uh, it must have been Washington. New York. New York. Oh my God! You'd think it was in Berlin. Oh my God! Like the swastika flags. The amount of people there. The sharp suits. There's, there's literally SS soldiers in there. I like. I was just. Well, maybe not SS. Probably a bit too early for SS. But like German soldiers all lined up there. And um, wow, it was just. Oh, so that was in America. Wow, you know. Uh, I wonder how long America's uh, sort of hit those pictures for. Like, we don't want people to see that now, do we? Uh, <laughs> and also, uh, I watched a film um, uh, earlier in the year called uh, Jojo Rabbit, which is um, made by Taika Waititi, with Scarlett Johansson, um, and it's about um, it's about a young boy who's um, who's got who's got an obsession with Hitler. He's a rock star to him, you know. He's in, he's in Germany. It's kind of like. It's all about brainwashing and kind of like, uh, what do we do to Jews and what do we do this? It's kind of like how he's been brought up. And he has an imaginary friend, which is take a Waititi as Hitler. And he's like, you're stupid. You know, he's coming out of a, a kid's imagination. It's quite funny. But at the same time, it's um, it's very clever. Very clever because um, Scarlett Johansson is obviously, she's a German lady, but she's part of the resistance and she's trying to hide Jews and she's trying to hand out pamphlets and trying to, you know, cause a bit of uh, background sort of noise and resistance. And I, every time this kid goes out of, uh, into the town, they mess with the colouring and the filtering a bit because it starts off all bright and colourful. This is Germany, you know, and this is great. And then uh, towards it, it gets a bit more dull and a bit more dull and a bit more dull. And I won't spoil the ending. I won't do that. But by the end, uh, everything's just kind of, there's a bit of a, a lock, stock and two smoking barrels sort of filter on there is kind of like he's a bit more not quite as colorful and as bright because this kid's realizing what's going on he's kind of working out for himself it's it's really really clever it's yeah. them, like Shyamalan tactic that is yeah it's uh it's fantastic mm, that quite a lot if you want to understand what is probably like being like, like a, as a german child in, in in germany during them times watch that film it's called jojo rabbit it's really is fantastic take a white is just a genius for me he can make anything and i'd enjoy it um 
So what, what, when does this book get released then, Simon? That's the most important thing we want to hear on this show. When can we read uh, it? October next year. <clears throat> yeah. And um, have you got like, I mean, obviously with the pandemic and everything that's going on, have you got big plans for the release? Uh, are you going to do some, some, some like tours and some readings and things like this? So how are you approaching In it? In part, I'll be guided by the publishers. Um, this is my first time with a, a, a big publisher. The other books were published uh, by an American company. Um, and they largely do uh, e-books rather than uh, paper books. These publishers work very differently. So I'll be guided by them. But, yeah, the plan will be uh, getting in contact with you, um, yeah. local radio, lo- local press, speak to anyone who will listen to me. Hopefully we'll be out of lockdown by then. So yeah, let's get, get in front studio. of the audience. Yeah. What would Definitely. you say to anybody listening to this that might want to approach you as a member of the press, actually? Maybe they got their own podcast. Maybe it's uh, BBC Radio Shropshire. I know you listen. I know you listen, BBC Radio. <laughs> um, <laughs> that might want to uh, get you on the show, but might feel a bit tetchy about uh, approaching the subject of hol- of the Holocaust or genocide, like I did on episode one of the Shrewsbury Biscuit. What, what do you say to them? Well, on Radio Shropshire, I've I've done interviews with Jim Hawkins and Mark Elliott, and okay. they've been excellent. They they understand the subject. They ask the right questions. They're interested. They want to inform their listeners, you know, as you guys do. Um, so, no, anyone wants to talk to me, just give me a buzz. Uh, I'm, I'm contactable. Um, good. Yeah. Good, good. I, I would love to, um, maybe we can get some of your books in the studio. We can sort of try and sell some books for you and stuff. That'd be quite cool, wouldn't it? Yeah, mm. Imagine that. Let's get some to you anyway. Oh, yes, absolutely. Maybe we can give, uh, give someone a, a free gift, a, a, a prize. We're, we win a book on genocide, people. Comp- um, no, no. We, we do a competition thing or something, I would have thought. We could do something. Yeah, I mean, do you know what? What you're doing is really important, Simon. And yeah. I, I always talk very fondly of you because I've learned a lot off you uh, from the, the, the two years now we've been doing the show mm. and we do, we do come together now and again and we share, we share notes and talk about what you've been up to and what I've been up to. And I've had you on you suck as well. You come on the American show. That was fun. Um, because I think you are doing, you, 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 you do something that's important. History is important. You can't forget it. Right. And you no. can't rewrite those history books just by ignoring them. You know? And, and to be fair, I mean, I'll, Al knows himself anyway. I'm I'm a massive advocate for like history and stuff. I mean, I've been trying to trying for the last two years to kickstart memoirs of a Salopian because that all I want that that's open to anybody who um, has. It's only been eighteen months. <laughs> yeah, it's just I can't seem to get anyone. Um, basically, any of the sort of old people, you know, like the your nams or granddads, say, "Oh, I remember when that used to be that whatever shop." And you know, normally you sit there, you're like, "Yeah, you told me this every single time you bought past the shop for the last thirty years," you know. But um, I want to hear about that. I want to, and I want to sort of start collating all that memories and all that data and all that, all the, all the, you know, all this stuff, little experiences. Oh yeah, I remember in that pub, so and so had a fight and they got chucked out the window. Like you know, and you think like, what? Yeah, all these little bits of memories. Because then hopefully somebody will listen and go, I was there, and I, I remember that, you know. And then they can put their perspective in, and then it will all start sort of combining <clears throat> together and stitching together and creating this kind of audio. Um, image of of this sort of 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 the history of Shrewsbury like you know so people like yourself that's that's looking back and documenting all this stuff working with um survivors and 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 all kind of that is I I I love it I absolutely love it to pieces and obviously as much as the subject is not necessarily a, a nice one I think that the the point of what you're trying to achieve is is a great one you know I also remember when I first started in nursing and I was 18 19 and meeting just a handful of patients who'd served in the First World War in the trenches. They'd been mm. in the Somme and Ypres and Passchendaele and various other places. But I'm, it's something you become aware of as you get older. Um, I, I was 18, 19. To me, they were ancient people. Yeah. And although they told me these horror stories about trench life, it didn't really register because my father had served in Burma. And right. to me, that was more relevant. Their experiences were ancient history. And I look back now and say, why didn't I ask questions? Yeah. Yeah. You know, some I, notes. I had that yeah. wonderful opportunity there, albeit as a student nurse with a patient, just to ask some questions, to be curious about their life. Yeah. Uh, what they went through. And I didn't. And you know, I look back, that was 79, 80. They were probably um, in their late 70s, early 80s. You know, old, but not uh, impossibly mm. ancient. But to me, the age difference was huge. And their experiences... Uh, didn't register as they should have done with me. I really wish I'd asked questions. Exactly, then. exactly. And you hear that all the time, don't you, from people? 
you hear like you know oh, I wish I'd have like, I say it myself you know both my nan and granddad have both died and like I often sit there and I think if, if I was doing this podcast now I'd love to get my, my granddad and my nan and stuff to sit down with me and just <clears> talk <throat> not about yeah. anything in particular not about a specific point just talk about it right okay so mm. tell me about your life you know, just just tell me about it you know tell me about your time in the army and just start it off and and you you you, you know yourself once someone starts especially these old people once they start sort of talking about it and they get into the rhythm and they start all these mm. memories start coming back they keep going they can just keep going for hours <laughs> if you let them. You know they'll keep going for hours, and and I I really wish that I'd have done that with my my grandparents. And what I'm trying to achieve with this is is trying to open that avenue for other people that to 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 do that. You know, well, to hopefully get that that information. Here's what we can do, right? I'm, I'm talking to anybody that's listening now. Um, I would like to get memoirs of a sloping started for 2021. Okay, but we need a bit of help. Um, if anybody would like to become almost like a, a journalist, there you go. You'll be a journalist for the Shrews and Biscuit. I'll give you a little microphone. We've got a Tascam microphone. Uh, I'll, you can, maybe that's not going to work with the pandemic, but you can go out and find us people um, and work with Shane and, and find people to, for us to speak to. And when things do calm down, we can give you a microphone and you can go and do some interviews for us. Uh, if anybody wants to come and, uh, uh, you know, and help us with that, get in touch. Okay. Because uh, we want to, if you've got the time and you want to do something like this, that is, I think really, really valuable uh, to the community around us, especially Shrewsbury, you know, like I used to drink at that pub when it used to be that called that. And I went to this school and my head teacher was this person. And, you know, I used to have this great teacher, deputy head teacher in uh, Brinoffer, the school I went to in Wrexham called Mr. Reinen. He was a very peculiar character. He used to walk around with a, this is when I was in school, right? I'm not that old. I used to walk around with a big pipe you're in his mouth and he'd come up to you boy oh why are you doing out of class why are you not getting any you can smell the smell honestly i got sent to mr island's um, uh, office once and i was terrified and he sat me down like why are you doing that boy and i told him oh okay and he just gave me this really nice conversation i was terrified i thought i was gonna beat me to death or something <laughs> we need to capture these uh, these stories right so uh, get in touch uh, but we need help with it because uh but also uh, if, if if you listen to this and you know somebody maybe it's your grandparent maybe it's your nan your granddad you, you know uh, step <clears throat> nan and granddad granddad-in-law you know it doesn't matter if they've got some history in Shrewsbury, and you know and they've got so, they've got a story to tell we want to hear it so drop us a message, get us, get in touch with us. You know, we can do it over Zoom, so there's no obviously no contact problems and stuff with COVID. Um, it's very, very easy going. Um, all we want to do is just literally talk, and I'm sure most grandparents like talking. So <laughs> every community um, has people with a wealth of lived experiences. Yeah. You know, whether it's their, their school days in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, whether it's uh, being a teacher in education in different decades, you know, fire personnel, police officers, uh, health workers, farmers, shopkeepers, publicans, everyone mm. will have stories to tell that will be of interest. And, you know, you Certainly. Just a bigger picture of our community. Mm. I'm, I'm, sure that, I'm sure there's an old copper out there that's like, they wear cameras now. We had <laughs> a bit of whistle and a stick. Like, that's what we had. And still toe cap boots. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, my, my granddad was born in 1901. <clears throat> Um, my dad's dad, you know, um, I I so wish that I could have sat down with him and, and chatted to him, you know, even as a kid, because he would have seen so, so much living from that sort of era. You know, he, he was, you know, just, just imagine what he's seen in the last sort of, you know, since 1901. There's pictures of him, there's a picture somewhere of him literally running alongside a horse and cart, um, you, you know, in, on the, um, used to, you know what I mean? They just mm. run alongside the horse and cart, don't they? For, for his parents, <laughs> and and that, that's this picture of him doing that. And I'm like, he, you know, the wheel was only just invented at that point. <laughs> you know, like, like, you know, I'm like, and uh, but yeah, he died before I was born, so I never got that opportunity and yeah. stuff like that. But all this, all this information, this history, and this knowledge is just dying off. You know, and we're in an era now where we're able to we've got access to more data than we ever have done in, in, in before. Literally at our fingertips. You know, I could literally go online and I can I can go down the streets in New York. You know, like like that. Whereas the stuff that this, these people have, have experienced is in their head. 
It's not on the internet. <clears throat> it's not um it's not you know it's not in writing, it's not in a book, it's in their head and it's personal experiences, and that's what that's what I'm trying to get at. That's what I'm trying to get at, you know. That's what yeah. that's what I want to try and capture into an audio file. But it, it's very easy to fall into the trap that history is is war, is genocide, it's the mm. Tudors, it's it's politics, it's uh, yeah. Romans and Normans and everything. His history is all around us. Yeah. People's experiences, you know, where you know, where I live now, what was this like mm. sixty years ago? Exactly. Yeah, I'm of an age. As we all know, we've all seen changes. Yeah, uh, physical changes in our community. I I see places where there are uh, uh, big industrial estates now where there was nothing before. Yeah, uh, um, you know, um, industrial buildings where there were small houses before. You know, the the whole That's layout it. of aspects of the town has changed. Uh, so there lots of people will have experiences that that are worth hearing. That's it. And and it's like, you know, like you said, it's not just the big stuff, the big iconic, you know, milestone stuff in, in history. It's also the fact that uh, I knew a bloke called Jack Brown who used to own a pub on the corner. Mm. You know, and it's just like, yeah. that is history. That is history because I don't know who Jack Brown is. Well, you know, like, and I, I don't even know what that pub is because now it's a massive block of flats. So I don't even know that pub even exists. So what, what happened in that pub? What did it look like? You know, what did it smell like? What sort of people, did, you know, what did you drink in there? What, you know, what was the most favourite drink? What did what music did you listen to? You know, mm. all this stuff is just all building and building and building. And what I hope is that it just all, like I said, all ties together into a massive network of memories all stitched together, with, you know, linking everybody together in some way, you know. Well, how many how, look at the conversations you see on for the love of Shrewsbury? Somebody be like, "What did this building used to be?" And the comments that the conversations people have on that is just fantastic. So, yeah, I think I think we can try and add some context to that. Like, yeah, I used mm. to. Go, did you know that building used to be this, and this building used to be that? Yeah, yeah, that's we can do that. Um, but we need help. So get in touch, people. Um, yeah, there's some very ch- colourful stuff about Grow Plain a couple of days ago. Um, about what? Sorry, Grow Plain. Where's that? Grow Plain. Oh, Grope Lane, yeah, yeah. Yeah, on the Love and Shrewsbury, have a look. There's some colourful information about its history. Mm-hmm. We covered that. <laughs> we, we did the uh, the So stories. Um, if you don't know what the So stories are, uh, we did uh, four uh, audio tours of Shrewsbury, which are very good, by the way. And we're going to be making four more for the Darwin Festival soon. Um, but they are on the original Shrewsbury website, and you can literally find down. You can download this as an as like a podcast. Go to the place and listen to the. And we did. Uh, I've listened to the tour, and we did one with Bear Steps with uh, with Bibs, and obviously Bear Steps, and we did all around the area. And yeah, we uh, we talked about how women used to ply their trade and stuff. You know, it's, it's history. Like you said, you know, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're talking about genocide. You know, uh, the sex industry is as old as civilization. You know, mm-hmm. so you know, it is what it is. Um, you brought up a, a really good point there, Shane, and I'd love for you, Simon, to sort of elaborate on it. So uh, data, data is, uh, the, you know, we are living in, in a society where there is, there is so much information and not all of it is credible. Not all of it is credible. Does that make it more difficult for you uh, when you're doing research? I, I think people have to be cautious, um, particularly if, if you're doing research or not necessarily just research, even with social media, you know, the memes that pop up on Facebook, Twitter and elsewhere. Um, question um, a lot of them. You can do a, a Snopes check on you know, supposed speeches by an Australian prime minister that are anti-migrants. You know, check it and you'll find that it's got origins in, in Texas in 1983 or whatever. No, no, that's, yeah. not, that's not necessarily true, but I'm just giving a general example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People can check uh, the authenticity mm. of the information they're receiving. Look at the uh, agenda of sources. People Everyone has an agenda of some sort, um, particularly if they're putting information out into the public domain. Um, when people share things, um, look at what they've shared. You know, I, I get things pop up on Facebook that are rapidly uh, racist, and other people have shared them. I, I didn't think I got any friends on Facebook who were racist, but they'll mm-hmm. share things. I look at the posts the person they've shared and invariably find some extreme ultranationalist. Why are you sharing this person's thing? Oh, I agree with what I said about. Um, veterans and poppies, yeah, but have a look at the bigger picture. Uh, this yeah. person has an agenda. Uh, so it's just just to be questioning other things. You know, don't always take things at face value. You, you can't spend your life questioning everything. You, you'd be spinning around going <laughs> daft if you question everything. Um, but certain things, be willing to question, be willing to just explore a bit further and a bit more deeply. Mm. It was like this thing that, um, okay, so I mean, I've, I always say it's healthy to discuss. It's always healthy to discuss these things, even debate. You know, because um, 
I, I've had Extinction Rebellion on my show before. I, I, you know, they they wanted to talk about something that I wanted to give them a voice, and I gave them on, again got them on the show to talk about what they want to talk about. And a lot of it, I do agree with. I do think uh, the world needs to change. I do feel, uh, you know, it's going to slowly get there. I do believe that. Um, but when it comes to um, desecrating uh, cenotaphs um, in, in London, uh, like the way they did, I just, I mean, that could have been just a single person. I don't know if it was uh, anything to do with Extinction Rebellion, but it was, I think it was claimed as something by Richard. you got to remember that a lot of people that fought in World War One and Two were conscripts. They had no choice. They went and they died. Uh, without any choice uh, so you cannot condemn the people everybody that was involved in that you can't and there's a lot of innocent people that were killed as well so you can't desecrate things like that you know it's just not done um i don't know why i brought that up i think i just need to get that off well, my chest the acts of vandalism that protests have got to think about you know what that does to their message what it says about them i've, I've been on um, many marches and protests and um, every one of them has been peaceful uh, if they weren't peaceful, I'd walk away. I've been to protests where um, some elements there have had a, an agenda that has nothing to do with the protest. So if it's a, a protest about the environment or a demonstration about the environment, there'll be uh, some from the political extremes mm. trying to put forward their agenda. Why are you here? You know, and I've walked away because I don't want to be part of that. So when people commit acts of vandalism, does that help their message or does it damage that message? If they get perceived by others purely as vandals then they're not getting the message across and if you know extinction rebellion wants to do something to uh, help the planet and reduce climate change and everything else um they really need to that needs to be the focus yeah Um, i suppose it's the right way to deal with stuff isn't there hmm. um yeah, I, I agree, and I, we're seeing a lot of it now in Telford, aren't we? With the, uh, the anti-vax graffiti, you know, you're not seeing healthy conversations being had. Like, yeah, I understand why you're cautious, you know, I am too, uh, but it's for the good of the the community. Blah blah blah. You, you, what you're seeing is, oh, little twerps, like how dare they do, <laughs> they do that? Like, you're not seeing it's not getting the point well, across. Yeah, it's just. <laughs> so yeah, it's a valid point. So absolutely. Information, yeah. information is difficult. Something. It is difficult, isn't it? You know. But I mean, you can kind of understand some. I'll say, I'll say it really badly. Actually, I'll tell it back. It, you can you can make a connection as to why somebody behaves in a certain way, especially when somebody's been oppressed over a certain long period of time, and they got to that point. You know. Um, so you know, you're sitting there, and you're like, "Well, what did you expect?" Yeah. And, what did you expect? I, I've you always know? argued that. It's useful to try and understand people, mm. even if you don't agree with them. It's useful to under- try and understand where they come from, why yeah. they, they feel the way they feel. You don't necessarily have to agree with them, and it doesn't necessarily excuse them, whatever uh, the issue at hand. But if you understand, you might be able to reason with people or you might be able to mm. affect change with people. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it, look, look at it, if you bring it right down to a very sort of singular and, uh, and put it in a box a little bit. You know, if you get a kid that's being bullied relentlessly at school, eventually he's going to hit him. He's going to lash out. You know, it's just what's going to happen. He's going to end up lashing out, and then everyone's going to look at the look at the boy that's lashed out and gone. Oh, he's just hit somebody. It's like well, he's been bullied for the last ten years hmm. by the same person. What yeah. did you expect? It is. You know, it, like it's a it's a terrible situation when you can't stand up for yourself. And like you know, we were talking about information and and the credibility of things. You know, and you talk about memes. And it's propaganda, right? Propaganda is. Is is relevant now as it was back in Nazi Germany, right? It's, it's everywhere. Mm. Whether you're a Trump supporter, whether you're a Biden supporter, whether you're you're for Brexit, whether you're against Brexit, whatever. This it's all every it's everywhere, right? Um, do you think those were lessons that were learned back in the day? You know, like uh, during the war, um, Nazis were brilliant at their propaganda. You know, they 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 make you know uh, high quality almost movies of the constant. Mm. Oh, look, it's like a Holiday Inn. You know, they get plunk pillows and stuff, you know. Uh, do, you, do you feel like um, looking at that and what it did and what it uh, what it, what it was part of, uh, do you think there's been any lessons learned from the past? Oh, goes- I'm, I'm sure there have been. It's interesting. I, I was just in Agua, way somewhere. A book that's worth reading, because um, I said about trying to understand what, uh, the perspective of other people. It's a book by a chap called Nicholas Stargardt. And it's called The German War, The Nation Under Arms, 1939-1945. It's well worth reading. It's a, a book that is made up of diary entries, 
letters, correspondence, mm. um, interviews with German civilians and military personnel. Um, and their perception of what was going on is very different to ours. They, a lot of them can't understand why they're being bombed. Why are the British and the Americans doing this to us? What have we done to them? You know, we tried to be friendly. Why is this happening? Why is that happening? They're talking about you know, starvation and rations and uh, the winter clothes collection. They're talking about life on the front from their perspective. Uh, there are even those who committed harm against Jews who mm. rationalise it. They, they, they try to rationalise it. They can't rationalise it. It's worth reading uh, just to try and understand their perspective um, because their lived experiences were very different to ours. Memoirs wow. of a German. There you go. That's <laughs> history. It's everywhere, you know? Let's tell people uh, sort of where they can find your uh, your material and, and get access to uh, to your, your the books that are out now and uh, how they can follow you, Simon. Well, I have a, a Facebook author page, so just Simon Bell author. The books are available on Amazon, uh, either paperback or Kindle. Um, the book that is currently with publishers will be in all formats, um, as from October next year. Yeah, um, I'm going to go onto the Amazon page now da, 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 to find your books. Now, there's another author called Simon Bell, and it always throws me off. Because um, if you do Simon Bell Auschwitz, that will narrow it down a bit. Okay, Simon Bell. Uh, How many books you got out altogether now, Simon? Uh, well, I had one withdrawn from print. Um, yeah, so currently two out and another uh, one on the way. So, what's the, title, the one that's coming? Are we allowed to know that yet we, or not? We, we keep changing it. It, it <laughs> the Holocaust Wider Guild Lessons for Today. Um, they've changed it to Remembering the Holocaust Lessons for Today. Um, I'm still not comfortable with the title, but it'll be along that theme. I suppose it's one of those things, isn't it? It's a bit like naming your child. Like, yeah. you, you, you um and are about it for quite a while, don't you? And then eventually yeah. you're like, That'll do. <laughs> yeah. well, they, 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 publishers use a, an expression. You've got to. Um, it's the title has got to be like Cuprinol. It's got to say what. It, like, know, like Heinz beans. Does, yeah. So Heinz baked beans. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Heinz baked beans. Um, okay. So the book I've got here is Auschwitz to Birkenau, uh, to uh, from hell to hope, and it's uh, seven pounds sixty nine on, on Kindle. So that's easy. You know, you throw it on your on your e reader. Yeah, also tribal tribalism and prejudice. Yes. Uh, the far right and lessons for today. Yes. Um, Simon, you're a great guy, and I, I will I'll defend you to the depths. I really will. Um, and I always yeah, enjoy... Nothing to defend. <laughs> no, there isn't. And that's, oh, I feel oh. terrible saying that, but you know what I mean. You're my homie yeah. for life, that's what I mean. Okay. Uh, homie for life. <laughs> homie for, for life. <laughs> a well-established author, historian, and, you know, a guy who's from a medical background. Homies for life. There you go. <laughs> Simon, you're a great you're a great guest. Thank you so much for joining us again and we'll happily have you on uh in the future. When the book's out, uh we'll we'll get you in the studio. We're actually in the studio and we'll do some, you know. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, Definitely. Yeah. Um, listeners, have you got a website, Simon? Have you got a website? No. no? no. Okay. Uh, but I'm gonna tell you about it's my web website. orchard, Simon. They'll sort you out. Yeah, they will. Web orchard. If you want a website, uh the guys from my watch will sort you out. Could like they sorted out us with a website, yeah. which is uh, uk. I do realise in that poster I, I'm looking at right now, I put the wrong email, um, website address. It's oh. Idiot. I sent that out as well on social media. Uh, yes, uh, check out our website. All our audio should be available on there. Um, and obviously it's made by Web Orchard. I want to give a shout out to the guys at the parade shops as well. Huge salute to you guys working through Christmas. I'm staying away from the studio, staying away from the parade. I don't want to add to the Christmas uh, rush uh, that's going on. going to be going on for the next uh, couple of weeks. Um, I want to say hi to you guys um, at the parade. Make sure you pop in because it looks beautiful down there, especially downstairs outside uh, Birgitta Zuckman's um, studio. Uh, there's lots of nice decorations on there. It looks amazing. So make sure you check that out. That's the parade shops by uh, St. Mary's. Simon, <laughs> again, thank you so much for joining us. I wish you the best of luck with the uh, the book when it's released in October. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Uh, and don't forget, guys, get in touch if you uh, want to be a part of our memoirs of a sloping. We're after someone to go and find us people to speak to. If you've got, if you've got enough time and you can commit to that and you want to be that person, get in touch with us. All right. You're right, guys, awesome. let's get out of here. This has been awesome. Thank yeah. you very much, and we'll catch you next time. Peace out. See you later. Cheers.